With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Even if you've never heard of Luis Fanon, if you've proven you're not a robot online, you've used something he's created. He tells me he doesn't read stories about himself. And he's probably the only CEO I've ever interviewed who believably says he doesn't care about money. Everything that I've done has been with the goal of just having a lot of impact on a lot of people's lives. This is Business Insider's Success How I Did It. I'm Rich Filoni. Von Ahn is the CEO of Duolingo, the popular language learning app. He's also one of the guys who developed CAPTCHA, those things that ask you to type in a word or a series of letters when you're buying tickets or signing up for an email newsletter. Von Ahn grew up in Guatemala and he came to the U.S. to be part of the tech scene. He was driven by a goal of getting millions of people to work together online. It made him a pioneer of the crowdsourcing movement, which is where we start our conversation. Early on, it was uh, trying to get millions of people to work on something together. You know, this is basically crowdsourcing. And now it's trying to get millions of people to learn something uh, with Duolingo, trying to get millions of people to learn languages. So does this idea of kind of getting people to work together on the internet, is that something that still drives you even if it's in other projects? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I think about all the time. I mean, this is something that I worked on a lot in the early 2000s. How do we get millions of people to work on a common goal? So did this love of starting companies and working in tech, did that start as a kid? I think so. I mean, technology definitely started as a kid. I, when I was eight years old, my mother bought me a computer. I, I wanted a Nintendo, and she bought me a computer instead, and I was pretty pissed off. <laughs> but I had to, I mean, I was forced to learn how to use it because I, I kind of wanted to play games with it. Uh, she got me a Commodore 64, and um, I learned how to use it. So that's when I started really getting into computers. The starting companies thing, that didn't really happen until I was in my 20s. What was it like growing up in Guatemala City? I had a pretty normal childhood when I compare with other people here in the United States. I was fortunate that I was kind of upper middle class. Both of my parents were were medical doctors. You know, Guatemala is a very poor third world country. And, you know, when I was growing up, it turns out that there was a civil war going on. But I never really experienced it. It's this interesting thing. People sometimes are like, wait, didn't you grow up during the Guatemalan Civil War? Which is true. I did. But I, I didn't experience it. I had a pretty normal childhood. I think I was very fortunate to be shielded from all of that. Do you remember as a kid when that computer that your mom got you at eight, when it went from a lousy gift to something that you actually got really excited about? Yeah, it probably took about a year. So at age eight, I was pretty bummed. But by age nine, I was quite excited about it. And what started happening is I got a few games that I convinced my mother to buy me. 
but at some point she just kind of stopped. She said, look, these are expensive and you should not, <laughs> I'm not going to buy you more games on the computer. So I started discovering how you could actually copy games from other people. They usually had these very rudimentary copy protection mechanisms back then. And I, I figured out how to get around them. So at some point I was in my whole kind of area of the city. I was like known as the guy who would help you kind of pirate games. And I was only 10 years old. <laughs> I got pretty excited by it because I basically had access to most games because somebody somewhere had bought it and I, I would help everybody copy it. So that that's when I started getting pretty excited by it. So it was cool to be the, the guy that everyone went to for these? Yeah, and, and people would show up to my house. And usually these were much older people. Not It's not like they were 40 years old, but I was 10 and these people were like 17. And just my mother was like, I, I don't really want to have these teenagers coming into my house randomly. So I, at some point I had to just kind of do all my dealings just in the front door. I wouldn't let them in. <laughs> it's like selling drugs. <laughs> That's funny. So at this point, like this experience of just being like this 10-year-old video game bootlegger, did that end up inspiring you that, hey, maybe I could, when I grow up, actually make a career out of doing stuff with the computer? Yeah. You know, I thought, you know, I, when, I get, when I get older, I could probably do something with computers. So you end up at Carnegie Mellon University studying computer science, and then you get into the early days of crowdsourcing. Could you tell us what CAPTCHA is? Sure. So... This is something that happened in my first semester of the PhD program at Carnegie Mellon University. The guy who was the chief scientist of Yahoo came to give a talk at Carnegie Mellon about 10 problems that we don't know how to solve at Yahoo. I, I listened to the talk, and when I went home, I tried to work on all of these problems. I couldn't come up with any great ideas for any of them except for one of them. And the problem was they had these people that would sign up for free email accounts you know, by the millions. So somebody would write a program and they would use these to send spam because what happened is that each Yahoo account only allowed you to send like 500 messages per day. And if you're a spammer and you wanted to send 10 million messages, you would get a couple of million email accounts. And from each one, you would only send like 10 messages or whatever. So these people wrote programs to obtain millions of email accounts and Yahoo did not know how to stop them. And I started kind of telling also my PhD advisor at the same time, you know, about this problem. And, and it, it kind of occurred to the two of us together that the thing to do was to have something that distinguishes whether the thing creating an account is a human or a computer program. Because computer programs can obtain 2 million email accounts easily. But a human, you know, after obtaining 30 email accounts, they get bored and they stop. So that's where we came up with this thing called a CAPTCHA, this, this test that can distinguish humans from computers. And what it is is it's these squiggly, distorted letters that you have to type all over the Internet. That's there because humans can read the distorted characters, whereas computers can't do it as well. And right after we came up with that idea, within, within a couple of months, Yahoo started using it to prevent automated signups to their service. And soon after, essentially every major website in the world was using them. So when Yahoo approached you with this, did you think, okay, I'm going to make a deal here, maybe get rich? No, this was this did not happen actually. We were just so happy that we had made this thing that Yahoo was ready to use that you know, we gave it to them for free. To this day I I, I hadn't really much thought about making much money. I mean, even with the with the game bootlegging, this was not a money-making thing. It was just I was just happy to have a bunch of games. It was similar here. Neither my PhD advisor nor I thought of making too much money here. Uh, or making any money, so we gave it to them for free. We were just we were just happy that they were using it. So you don't have any regrets over that? No, I don't. I mean, it ended up working out pretty well for me, so I, I don't have much regrets about that. I'm happy with it. I mean, I would have done things differently if it was now, because I now know how the world works a lot better. 
But at the time, I mean, I it's not like I, I sit here regretting it. So are you not maybe naturally business oriented? I mean, you're saying that you didn't want to sell things as a kid and you didn't even cross your mind to sell it to Yahoo. Yeah, I don't think I am naturally business oriented. And this is something, I mean, even with, with this, my latest venture, Duolingo, it took us a while to start actually making money. I mean, by now we are making significant amounts of money, but this has not been my my driving force. My driving force has really just been making products that a lot of people use. And yeah, I, I don't think I am naturally money oriented. When did you realize that your driving force was just making technology that lots of people used? After helping create CAPTCHA, the satisfaction that it gave me to see that, you know, every day millions of people would use this and that, you know, kind of everybody who I talked to had seen these or had come across them or, well, most people actually hated them. That just gave me a lot of satisfaction that, that a lot of people had used this. And from then on, I everything that I've done has been with the goal of just having a lot of impact on a lot of people's lives. Did you ever get annoyed at one of your own uh, pieces of technology having to answer one of those captures that maybe is hard to understand? For sure. And and then the idea was just copied a lot. And many of them were not actually developed by me. I mean, sometimes the letters are very highly distorted. The most annoying for me is always just buying tickets on Ticketmaster. You know, they give you like 90 seconds to complete the transaction. And there you are like trying to enter your credit card and everything. And then you can't read the damn thing. So, uh, yeah, I I became annoyed at that a a few times. (laughs) Having to race the clock against your own creation, yeah. In 2006, you got a lot of attention when you got one of those uh, MacArthur Fellowships, which people often call genius grants. What was it like when you got that phone call? Yeah, that was uh, completely unexpected. I mean, I was just in my office one day, and I got this phone call, and the guy just said, have you ever heard of the MacArthur Fellowship? I said, sure, I have heard of it. And then he said, well, I'm happy to tell you that you've been selected for one of them. It was completely unexpected. You know, they're, they're very secretive about how they choose their, their recipients. I was obviously very, very proud of myself. But you know, every time that I get one of these awards, I kind of also feel guilty. I don't know why. There's probably years of therapy there to fix that. But I, I also kind of felt guilty. I don't know why, but that happened. What do you mean by that? Guilt over what? I don't even know. It's kind of just, I just kind of feel like I don't deserve it. Like, why am I getting it and not somebody else? I just get this feeling. It goes away, but I, I do get this feeling whenever I, I get like an award. Or, you know, the first time I saw myself when I originally made CAPTCHA, pretty soon after there was a, a pretty large spread on the New York Times, a, a big story about this. And there's a big picture of me there. And the first time I saw myself, the feeling that I got was, I don't deserve to be there. I don't know why I'm there. It's kind of like of guilt. So after that, when you started getting more attention, did you find a way to make peace with that somehow? No, I've never really found a great way to do that. I don't read stories about myself. I just, that's kind of how I do it. So you just end up having to use it as another vehicle for spreading the technology and if you have to talk, you have to talk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, it is a good way to spread things. Uh, I mean, in the case of Duolingo, for example, a lot of the, the spread, we've never done any paid advertising or anything like that. So a lot of the way in which Duolingo spread is by, you know, having, for example, news stories about it. So it is very valuable. It's just not something that I particularly love. When you had the captured technology, you were saying that you realized that maybe there's something else that you could do with this. What inspired you to make this recapture technology? Yeah, that was this 
kind of second go at the CAPTCHA. About five years had passed after I had helped invent the original CAPTCHA. And by then, you know, essentially every website used these. And I did a little back-of-the-envelope calculation that about 200 million times a day, somebody typed one of these, you know, on the Internet. And at first, I was pretty proud of myself because I thought, you know, this is a lot of people every day that are that are using something that I did. But it was the case that most everybody that I talked to kind of hated doing these. And I also started kind of feeling guilty that each one of them took about 10 seconds of time. And if you multiply 10 seconds by 200 million, you get that humanity as a whole was wasting like 500,000 hours every day doing these annoying CAPTCHAs. So that's when I thought, is there a way in which we can do something else with this technology? And that's when it occurred to me that it could have a second purpose. And that's where the recapture project was born, where the idea was that as people were typing these distorted characters, the idea was to also get them to help us digitize books. And the way that worked is at the time, you know, there were a few projects that were trying to digitize all of the world's books, like Google had one, for example, the Internet Archive hasn't had another one, where the idea was taking all the books that that had ever been written and scanning them to put them on the internet. Now, the way this works is, you know, you take a book, you scan it. Now, scanning, literally what it is, is it's taking a digital photograph of every page of the book. It gives you an image for every page. It's an image with words in it. The next step is that the computer needs to be able to decipher all of these words. But for older books where the ink has faded, the computer cannot recognize many of the words. So the idea was to take all of the words that the computer could not recognize in the book digitization process and to get people to read them for us while they type CAPTCHAs on the Internet. So basically, you know, whenever you were typing a CAPTCHA, these words were coming directly from books that the computer could not recognize. And we were using what people were entering to help digitize this. And that was the idea of the recapture project. It, it became very successful. At the height of it, we were probably digitizing about 100 million words a day, which is the equivalent of wow. 2 million books a year. We started out actually by helping to digitize the New York Times. Old editions of the New York Times were being digitized by people on the internet typing CAPTCHAs. How did that conversation with the New York Times come about? Oh, yeah, that was actually complete luck. I was giving a talk somewhere in Texas, and it's a very large audience, about recapture and what we could do with it. And then it turned out that the CTO of the New York Times at the time was actually in the audience. And he came to me at the end and he said, I know what you can digitize with this. We have this huge archive of all the editions of the New York Times. It was like 130 years or something like that. Pretty soon we were, you know, we had struck a deal on digitizing all their content. But that was kind of luck in that respect that the guy was sitting in the audience. And then, then after that, you know, midway of that project, actually Google decided to buy recapture to, you know, help with their book digitization efforts. So, you know, that's kind of how, how that went. So, you know, Google now owns recapture. And with that New York Times case, you had some great results, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the beauty of recapture. It really is very accurate. It was taking us about a week of time to digitize an entire year of New York Times content. Oh, wow. Yeah. And over time, the rate of digitization was becoming faster and faster because more and more websites were using this version of CAPTCHA as opposed to the previous ones. I know that the rate became a lot faster when Facebook signed up. So Facebook started using recaptcha as opposed to their own version of captcha and as soon as they signed up you know basically every person who signed up to facebook would help us digitize one word of either a book or a newspaper and that's a lot of people and with recaptcha so you sell it to google and you actually made a good deal out of this what had happened in terms of your perspective on your own approach to technology that changed where okay you actually were going to start selling some of your creations <sighs> I don't think anything had changed. I mean, it just, at some point, I sort of understood more how the world works. 
And, you know, it's not like I'm against making money. It's just never been a driving factor for me. And so this was a pretty good deal for both sides. I mean, Google really needed this technology to help digitize their books. And for us, it made perfect sense because, you know, we had the New York Times contract, but it wasn't like we had access to, you know, millions of scanned books like Google did. So on our end, you know, we just had one piece of of the whole process and Google had all the other pieces. So it it made a lot of sense. When did you realize that you wanted your next project to be Duolingo? Uh, It was soon after having sold Recapture to Google. I thought to myself, you know, what am I going to do now? I had to spend a couple of years at Google after the the, the sale. But at some point, I kind of just realized, "Mm, I really like to be my own boss. I really like doing stuff by myself. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to start a new project. What have I always really wanted to do or what has been my passion? And I I just always thought that education was my passion. I've always kind of loved learning stuff. So I thought I wanted to do something related to education. But then, you know, I started thinking, okay, education, let's see. Uh, First, I came back to my, my upbringing in Guatemala. It's a very poor country. And I saw it firsthand how those who have access to education can basically do very well in life. And in countries like Guatemala, a lot of people talk about education as something that removes inequality or that that, that kind of brings the the social classes together. But I always saw it as the opposite, as something that actually makes inequality because this was the case for me. I was able to, you know, get a very good education. And because of that, you're able to continue having a lot of money, whereas uh, people who don't have very much money in, in countries, particularly, you know, developing countries, barely learn how to read and write. And because of that, they can never kind of get out of poverty. I just got to the point where I wanted to do something that would give equal access to education to everybody. That was my my driving factor for when I wanted to start Duolingo. And then the next step is education is very general. And so I, I thought maybe I'll just do something a lot more specific. So I tried to narrow down to one thing. And I thought of learning languages, which is huge everywhere in the world, except for the United States. Learning languages in the United States is just not as big. But in most countries, learning English is a huge thing. In developing countries where English is not the commonly spoken language, those who know English usually can earn up to twice as much as somebody who doesn't know English. So it was a thing that would really try to help, had the potential to help a lot of people get out of poverty. And that's the driving factor for creating Duolingo. How many languages did you speak as a kid? As a kid, just English and Spanish. I mean, my native language is Spanish, but I learned English very early on. Then I tried learning French when I was in high school, but I failed. My motivations for learning French were not great. I had a crush on a girl who was in the French class, and so I decided to enroll, but I never learned anything. I also failed at getting the girl to go out with me. <laughs> so that didn't work. You met President Obama at the White House a couple of years ago to talk about Duolingo. How did that happen? Ah, yeah, the I guess the White House had um, a few startups come and it was kind of like a, a startup show and tell. I don't know how they selected them. We actually weren't told that we were going to go present to Obama. We were just told, yeah, it's going to be a thing in the White House. But when we showed up, we were all told, okay, there's, there's a very special guest that's, that's coming. He's actually, you know, the whole time it's been the case that he was going to go come and listen to it, but we just didn't want to tell you guys. And so uh, we had the opportunity to talk about Duolingo for a while with him which was it was pretty cool. What did he say to you? Duolingo was mainly an, an app in you know iPhones and Android devices. He said he was not allowed to use a, a smartphone. Uh, I guess things have changed. <laughs> I guess uh, presidents are now allowed to use <laughs> Twitter. Things have changed, I think. Uh, but I guess he said he wasn't allowed to use one of those. And so he said as soon as he uh, finished his presidency, he was going to 
try to learn some languages. He was pretty keen on on the fact that we were working on education. We talked a lot about how Duolingo is used in public schools. Um, Duolingo is used in about 20% of, of the U.S. public schools in language classrooms. Wow. So that was something else that we talked about, um, just generally technology to improve education. And can this app help replace or supplement existing language courses? I, I wouldn't say replace. I mean, I think the idea is to improve it. I mean, our idea with, with it is you can learn a language with Duolingo by itself. But if there's a teacher available, you usually it's better. The teacher plus Duolingo is better than either Duolingo or the teacher separately. So for those people who don't have access to a classroom or a teacher, they can use Duolingo and it'll work. Um, but if they do have access to a classroom and a teacher, it'll just work better. And so that's our idea. And there's just some things that with an app you just can't quite do that you can do with a teacher. Um, teachers are really good at, at answering some types of questions. They're also really good at, at motivating people. Classrooms are extremely huge motivators, uh, you know, in part because you're being forced to just show up. So they're extremely huge motivators. Are you going to uh, be taking Duolingo public? That's the goal. We're not quite there yet, but my best guess is we're two to three years away. Our revenue is growing quite significantly year on year, and that's the goal. You know, it's one thing for it to be the goal and another thing for, you know, all the stars to align, but that's, that's the goal. Are you worried at all that you might not be able to maintain a social component of it if you have to keep checking quarterly earnings? Yeah, that is, that is a legitimate worry. So far, we've been able to navigate that pretty well. It's, of course, very different. You know, I cannot tell you that I understand public markets super well since I've never been the CEO of a public company. But so far, this has worked pretty well with private investors. We have a lot of investment from venture capital firms or Google is one of our investors, for example, too. It's worked out pretty well in terms of being able to do both, sort of having a social good and making revenue. But yeah, it's a worry. It's not our biggest worry, but it is a worry. Would you want to remain CEO if it becomes a public company? Yeah, I I think so. I think you're also supposed to say yes to that question, no matter what. (laughs) (laughs) But yes. (laughs) I saw that uh, at some point that Bill Gates tried poaching you. What happened there? Yeah, I mean, this was this was as soon as well when I had just gotten a job as a professor in computer science. You know, I got a few phone calls from him, really trying to convince me to to join Microsoft Research. I was very humbled by it, and um, to me, it's been amazing to talk to him. I mean, over the years, I've I've met him. You know, I don't know, maybe ten times. He remains my hero. I mean, that he's he's just amazing. Everything that he's done, and just the way he thinks, is, is one person that you sit there in a room and you think this person for a fact, is significantly smarter than I am. I appreciate talking to him every time. What do you guys talk about when you meet up? Uh, the last time was in January. He was interested in learning more about how we're using artificial intelligence in Duolingo to try to teach better. You know, he was, he was lamenting the fact that a lot of, particularly education companies, are claiming that they're using AI in very sophisticated ways, but in reality, it's, it's pretty unsophisticated. And so, you know, he was trying to understand all the places where we use AI. And I would say for Duolingo, we're we're about medium sophisticated. You know, there's no company that's using artificial intelligence to teach that is like, oh, my God, this is completely groundbreaking in terms of AI and we're going to substitute all human teachers, etc. I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. Why have you stayed in Pittsburgh? Good question. I like it. And it's it's really it's really on the on the up at the beginning, I was in Pittsburgh because of Carnegie Mellon, which is just an amazing uh, you know, computer science program. And we started it here. We didn't see any reason to move at the time. And we thought that being near Carnegie Mellon would allow us to hire a lot of you know, great engineers. And it's been true. 
And over time, it's just Duolingo grew bigger and bigger. And at some point, it just became impossible to move. You know, we may start another office somewhere else, but moving at this point is it's just it's too many people. So that's kind of why. But it's worked out pretty well. You know, being in a city that's that's on the upswing is pretty good because you're just getting a bunch of, you know, highly talented people wanting to move here. And so that has helped us. Yeah. So is there an advantage to being in Pittsburgh that you might not get maybe in the Bay Area? Uh, there's ups and downs. Some of the pros, being near Carnegie Mellon really helps. Uh, we're able to hire really amazing people from there. Uh, you know, another big advantage is just cost of living. We're getting just a good number of people who just either are moving from the Bay Area or just don't want to go there to begin with, you know, fresh out of college. Because here you can get an apartment that's pretty nice and you can pay, I don't know, a thousand bucks a month. That is completely unheard of in the Bay Area. Many of our employees, I'm going to assume maybe half of the employees of Duolingo own a home. And that's completely unheard of in, you know, Silicon Valley. And so, you know, those are the advantages. Um, we actually just put up a billboard on US 101 near San Francisco that just says, own a home, work in tech, move to Pittsburgh. And then it just says duolingo.com slash jobs. Um, oh, nice. I don't know what that billboard will do. We hear that enough that we thought it was worth putting up the billboard. So we talked about some plans for Duolingo maybe in the next few years or so. But what do you have coming up? next this year this year we're spending a lot of time teaching more advanced stuff so duolingo has been really good at beginner to intermediate learners we're going to be concentrating a lot on more advanced learners we're also spending a lot of time on just making it a a strong business Uh, just our monetization one thing that i'm very excited about is so one of the ways in which we monetize duolingo is we have ads at the end of a lesson the ads that you're going to be getting are actually going to be video ads in the language that you're learning So, for example, if you're learning Spanish, you may get a short video of a Coca-Cola ad in Spanish. I'm pretty excited by that because, you know, our users love these. People actually want to watch them and pay a lot of attention. So this is one of those things that is is good for the user, but also good for the advertiser because these are not ads that people want to skip. They actually want to figure out what what is said in the ad. We also just launched a podcast, uh, which did really well. Season one ended, but while we were still in season it was in the top 10 podcasts the whole time. Now it's, I think, ranked number like 40 or something of all podcasts, which is pretty good given that it's a Spanish learning podcast. I'm actually taking a look at an episode of your podcast right now. And it said that in one of the episodes that before you left Guatemala that your aunt was kidnapped. Is that a true story? That is a true story. So our podcast, the way it works, they're all real stories. The last episode of the first season was actually a story about me that happened to me. The year right before I left for college here in the U.S., my aunt was actually kidnapped in in Guatemala. And so it's the story about how that happened. Oh, wow. If you chose this as the story to tell, is that something that impacted you heavily? Yeah, it did impact me. I mean, it was actually one of the decisions for me to leave to the United States. There were other reasons why I wanted to leave, but this was kind of the the last nail in the coffin for me deciding to leave Guatemala. I was like, oh, my God, now people are getting kidnapped here, too. Yeah, I mean, she was kidnapped. Um, she was gone for about ten days. This was this was a money thing. I mean, you know, in different countries, kidnappings are for different reasons. And was she returned? Yeah, she was returned. This was a business. Kidnapping was a business. It was is not good business to kill your victims. Yeah. Really, she was taken. She was actually taken care of pretty well. They 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 got all her medicines and they fed her pretty well. And then they just waited until um, the ransom was paid, and then they gave her back. Has there been a moment? in your career where there was a particular insight that really ended up guiding you? A 
Can you use curse words in this podcast? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Uh, I learned this. This is a good pithy one that always stuck with me. Uh, it's about hiring people. It is really detrimental to the organization when you hire people who are not very nice. But when you're hiring, and particularly for a startup, you're usually kind of pretty strapped for time. You're, you're just like, oh, man, we've been looking for this position, you know, whatever, um, head of marketing or whatever it is. We've been looking for this position for months and and, you know, this person's almost good. It's, they're almost good, but they just have this one little problem. There's always a huge desire to try to hire them, and maybe that problem will not manifest itself in the company, et cetera, et cetera. But what I have learned is this pithy line is it's better to have a hole than an asshole. <laughs> Everybody here is pretty nice. We're, we're, we're very proud of the fact that we have no assholes. Nobody tells you during a reference check that somebody's an asshole. The type of thing they tell you is you ask, you know, are they good at working with others? And the type of thing they tell you is like, yeah, it depends on the person. Like if they say that, that usually means they're an asshole. <laughs> so that's the warning sign, yeah. How do you define success? Oh, boy. For me, I think it's being able to do what you love. You know, there's the thing that you love and then there's your job. To me, you know... Success is kind of when you're really able to do what you love. And has that understanding of what it means to be successful, has that changed over your career? Yeah, it has. You know, when I was younger, I thought, well, okay, success probably means you have like, um, you like drive a Ferrari and like you have a big mansion somewhere or something like that. Um, that has changed. And, and it's, it's been changed by just looking at a lot of very successful, quote unquote, successful people and what types of things they appreciate. I've been around enough very successful people who the things that bring them joy are just not it gets it gets tiring and boring you know to drive around in a super fancy car or whatever i think that's that's what has changed it so it's you also finding ways to just stay interested yeah although for me it's been pretty natural maybe this is a bad thing for a ceo to say but i kind of just don't do the things i'm not very interested in i have the luxury of of that when i'm not super interested in it, i just i just don't do it the fact that I have that luxury to me is, is real success. It's just I just don't do things I'm not very interested in. Great. Well, thank you so much, Luis. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer. I'm Rich Filoni. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps. We'll be back next week with another episode of Success. Jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.